Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If we haven't met, my name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here. I, I do hope if you're visiting with us today that you, you feel um, you know, warmly welcomed by our church. If there's anything that you'd like to know more about our community, uh, don't hesitate to come up and like, introduce yourself to me afterwards or put, put a, uh, a note in the, in the um, offering plate as you go out. Love to be able to talk to you more about um, this body of Christ. We are going to be going through the book of Ecclesiastes uh, rather rapidly this season of Lent. I thought Ecclesiastes was a, a fairly Lenten kind of book. It's one of the strangest books of the Bible, and if you have your Bibles open, you notice that it follows right on the heels of the book of Proverbs, and it was purportedly to have been written by the same author as you know, Solomon and Proverbs. His authorship for Ecclesiastes is, is pretty hotly debated in scholarly circles, although I, I take Solomon to be the author of this book. But when you compare the two of them, they seem so different, don't they? Like they seem at odds. Um, one is bright and the other is dark. Or as one scholar puts it, <clears throat> the book of Proverbs is encouraging and comforting. It tells us that those who pursue wisdom will attain it, and with wisdom will come, will come all these manifold blessings. Furthermore, it tells us that there is a moral order to the world, a recognizable connection between cause and effect, and that there is a God who will ensure, uh, who's overseeing it all and will ensure that you know, things tend towards justice. And the message of the book of Proverbs is, fear Yahweh, keep his commandments, and that is the way to succeed and flourish and prosper. And if you don't, and if you pursue evil, then you will fall into a pit of your own making. And it'll, it'll re- rebound upon you. But then you turn the page to Ecclesiastes, and it almost feels like you've entered into a completely different universe. Because it is so dark. Ecclesiastes seems to teach that there is no discernible moral order. That wisdom is definitely overrated, <laughs> that the world is without, it's without apparent justice, <clears throat> without comfort, without stability, and though God is occasionally mentioned in the book, those statements seem almost incompatible with the apparent cynicism of the rest of the book. He might put it a little more strongly than I would, but I, I just wonder, have you felt that, like turning the page? going from the one book to the other, because I certainly have. I mean, it's, it's like Solomon, yeah, he wrote that book. Who wrote this book? Like, is, was this written by a cynic who basically realizes that the world is just one big absurdity? No, this world is absurd, and we'll sneer at it, or we will laugh at it, we will shake it off. Is it a cynic, or is it a hedonist who says that the, really the best thing we can do in this life is just enjoy it, have pleasure, party up? Uh, Or is it written by a nihilist, someone who says that there really is no discernible, coherent meaning in this world? You read through Ecclesiastes and you realize at some points in the book, it's almost like he's all of the above, or so it seems. I actually think that it's genius of God to have the Bible, the Bibles that we at least have in front of us, juxtaposing these two books back to back. Because I really think when uh, we do a, a closer inspection of it, that they are two sides of the same coin. 
And the coin's name is Wisdom. And one is heads and the other is tails. And to, to truly be a man or woman of, of great wisdom, you have to fully like, take in the message of both. And so what we're going to try and explore today and through you know, several weeks in Lent is, is how to do so. Where are we? Verse 1. It's usually where you start, isn't it? Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the teacher... Uh, sometimes referred to as the preacher. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of, in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That translation is meaningless. <laughs> because literally, and we'll, I'll talk about the significance of this in a minute. It's very, very significant. The words here are vapor of vapors, says the teacher. Vapor of vapors. Everything is vapor. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And what he's going to say in these next few verses is how nature just keeps running, going on and on and on without any regard for mankind and man's work. Generations come and generations go, and the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. And all the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. In the next verses, he's going to talk about the recurrent boredom of life, which none of us can relate to, right? All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its full fill of hearing. What has been done will be done again. What has been done will be, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago, and it was here before our time. And then you die, and there is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. <clears throat> I, the teacher, was king over Israel, over, over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the sun. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are vapor, a shepherding, it's like it, literally shepherding the wind. Shepherding the wind. One of the phrases that keeps popping up in the book of Ecclesiastes, it, Solomon will use this phrase like, what does it profit a man under the sun to do X? And by that he means, like, what is, is there any lasting fruit from whatever I pursue? And so for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize the first few verses of um, most of chapter 2. In verses 1 through 11, he, he attempts to find profit through pleasure. And he, you know, he you know, creates gardens, he does all of this. Can a man profit from pleasure? And his answer is, yeah, not really. And then in verses 12 through 16, he says, can a man profit from knowledge and study and wisdom and all of that? And he says, well, no, not really. And then 17 through 23, all this is in chapter 2. 
can a man profit from his work and his vocation? And he says, no, not, not really. He says, all of these are vapor. Verse 11, 211. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was vapor shepherding the wind. Nothing was gained or there was no profit under the sun. Then on the other hand, there's another recurrent phrase or phrases that keep popping up in this book. And it is, it is these that are scattered. There's one at the end of this chapter of, of what, what should we do then? Well, what we should do is we should eat and drink. We should really go around a table and eat and drink and, uh, the, with gratitude. And the first example I said is in verse 24. Um, and it'll show up maybe four or five other times. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. And this too is vapor, shepherding the wind. I really think we need to pray and ask for help and understanding because it is a, it's a challenging, um, challenging book and challenging couple of chapters. So shall we? Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, please help us to understand these words that we sincerely want to hear from the Holy Spirit, who is the fountain of all wisdom and who lives and reigns with you, Father and Son, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I want you to think back to your childhood, to the moment, the very first moment when a a sunbeam shone through the window into your house, a, a distinct you know, beam uh, of light. And, and you weren't in the sunbeam, but you were able to stand to the side of it. And gazing into the beam, you saw what? You saw dust particles. You saw, you know, little pieces of, of uh, hair or fabric, you know, twirling um, in the beam, in the light, glittering, and dust particles. The first time that, that you ever experienced that as a kid, what, what was your reaction? What did you try to do? You tried to grab it, didn't you? I mean, maybe you still try to grab it. <laughs> you, you put your hand out, you try to grab one of those particles, only to find that as soon as your hand moves there, they disappear. It's the same kind of experience when you're a kid flying on an airplane for the first time, sitting in a window seat, and you, the plane heads into a cloud bank, and all of a sudden, you know, the cloud is passing over the, the wing, and you, as a kid, you say, man, if I could only stand on the wing of the plane and just you know, put my hand out into the water vapor and capture it, like that would be the coolest thing in the world, Right? Um, but even if you were, even if you were able to stand on the plane, kids, on the plane's wing, you wouldn't be able to capture it because it is vapor. Verse 2 in our passage is almost universally acknowledged as a terrible translation of the Hebrew. 
Uh, my Bible, this is the old NIV, reads, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Your Bible, if you're looking at the old King James, what, what was that? Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. And the, the tragedy of that translation is it, it ends up obscuring the whole rest of the message of the entire book. Because Solomon, the one thing Solomon knows, he, does, he knows this life is not meaningless. Furthermore, he knows that this life, that everything in this life is not in vain. What he is saying is everything in this life is vapor. And I want to explore why that is uh, such a, a profound metaphor and a, a very powerful metaphor to um, guide us into, I guess, a, a wise life under the sun. Vapor of vapors is a Hebrew superlative, kind of like holy, holy of holies, like a place that is super holy. Vapor of vapors means, you know, utterly vaporous or this world is a life, it's a world of mist in two principal ways. And this is what we're going to cover today. Number one, it's a mist insofar as life defies our attempts to comprehend it, to see through it. And number two, life defies our attempts to control and to shape it. There's probably more that you could do with that metaphor, but that's what we're going after. Comprehension and control. So the first of these, think of the difficulty of trying to drive along a road in a thick fog. Um, Everything disappears, of course. Um, There's a world out there. There is a world. There's even a stoplight further, further down the road, but it disappears to you. For the vapor screens it off from you. You cannot see it. And so for to say that this life is, is vapor, is mist, is to suggest that it is hiding something from us. Now what is it hiding from us? There are two verses from the book of Isaiah which come to mind. You could say that really Ecclesiastes is a commentary on these two verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 45 verse 15 where we read, truly, you are a God who hides himself. Truly, you're a God who hides himself. In Isaiah 55, 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. What Solomon seems to say is what is hidden from us in this life under the sun is God and God's reasons. One example that I came up with, a couple months ago, our family watched the sci-fi movie, Christopher Nolan movie, uh, Interstellar. Came out in 2014. Anybody see that one? Matthew McGonaghy. Oh, you saw it. (laughs) Yeah, Matthew McGonaghy. So the plot, the earth has been infected by this terrible crop blight. And the earth is gradually becoming uninhabitable. The earth is gradually becoming a giant dust bowl. In fact, the way the, sh- the movie starts is it, it uses footage from like 19, what was it, Dust Bowl 1920? 1920s Oklahoma interviewing people back then. And so Matthew McGonaghy, his character Cooper, is sent on a mission, a space mission, to go and find a planet that humans can settle that will be habitable. And in order to do that, he has two young children whom he leaves in the care of their uh, grandfather, And the children are just heartbroken that their dad is leaving because they have no idea if they'll ever see their dad again. Well, a couple months into the space journey, 
Uh, oh, one other piece of important information. The only way that he can communicate with them is through these video messages that are sent from Earth to the ship and back. That's the only communication that he has. Kind of important to know that. A couple months into the, uh, to the trip, his team visits a planet that's located close to a black hole. And the gravitational pull on that new planet is such that it creates extreme time dilation. So that when his, his ship, his, got, his team goes down to the planet's surface, they end up spending only a couple of hours on the planet's surface. But when they get back to the spaceship that's or- orbiting the planet, they find that 23 years have passed in Earth time. 23 years. And without a doubt, I think you'd agree, like the most evocative moment in that entire movie is when Cooper sits down, downloads, and watches 23 years of intermittent video messages from his two children. And it's utterly heartbreaking. I mean, he tells about you know, his son. Um, his son, you know, you see his son grow old. He gets married. He has a son. He provides Cooper with a grandson. That son dies. They bury the son. He's telling him all this on the video messaging. Um, he's cursing his father in just despair. The daughter, who uh, wouldn't even say goodbye to her father when he uh, went off to the spaceship originally, she sends like one message a year, just kind of like a birthday message. She's utterly heartbroken and devastated in bitterness that he's left her. And he's just watching 23 years of his children's life and just weeping, just absolutely weeping. And I'm looking around the family living room seeing if anybody else is, is tearing up and crying because it's, it is so, so sad. And it is such an Ecclesiastes moment. It's, it's, it's where, did, where the hell did 23 years go? Why did this, why did this happen? Why did this happen to me and why did this happen to my kids? Why did this happen to us? Where is God in all of this? It is so incredibly sad. And what Solomon seems to be saying is vapor of vapors, vapor of vapors, we do not know exactly why. That is hidden from us. You know, much of this life Shrouded in mist. So much of this life is going through suffering that seems just utterly senseless to us. Though we try very hard to create our own explanations or, or give God's explanations why this or that happened. Um, if, if this really is a vapor of vapors, then life defies our attempts to comprehend it. J.I. Packer the Anglican fantastic pastor wrote the Knowing God. Um, Packer was writing about uh, kind of a meditation on wisdom. And he made this profoundly interesting point. And I'll kind of paraphrase it. But he said, you know, a lot of us when we were younger Christians, we thought, you know, what is wisdom? We thought wisdom you know, primarily consists in having a deep insight into the meaning and purposes of events that are going around us and the ability to see why God has done what he has done in a particular case. Uh, wisdom is, is sort of to go up. He uses the image of going into the um, train station control room and see where all the trains are headed. We would say wisdom is the ability to go up into the air traffic control tower and see all the planes on the radar, and to know that this one is going here, and this one is going there. 
Uh, we, some of us were taught that if we're really walking close to God, that we would, then we would under, that we would know <laughs> that God would just make clear to us how He is working all these these things together for good. And some of us also, in our, our youthful Christianity, spent a lot of time looking for signs from God. Signs to do this or to do that. Because God is telling me. God showed me. God did. And some of us who, like myself, suffer from depression, uh, you can drive yourself absolutely crazy with the pursuit of trying to figure out this and that. He says, this kind, this kind of um, attempt is a futile inquiry. It is futile to read a message about God's secret purposes for every unusual thing that happens to us. So the, the wise, here's the money, money quote, the wise man or woman humbly concedes that God has hidden from us almost everything we would like to know about why things happen or what are his purposes for this and that. The true gift of wisdom is to say, I don't, I don't know what the hell is going on. I cannot see through the fog and I'm okay with that. Because that is actually the way God created this world to be. That is what Solomon is saying. And in order to go through this life well, I mean, friends, we know to go through this life well, you don't have to be able to see. For faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the confidence of things that are not yet seen. Hebrews 11 And so I don't have to know, and I certainly don't have to see. In fact, seeing is probably antithetical to believing. And that is the the true gift of wisdom, to understand that. I thought that was profound. Nowhere is the fog um, so dense than, say, the fog of our own mortality and our own death um, and suffering that's related to our mortality and death. And that's something that keeps popping up again and again in Ecclesiastes. This is interesting. You probably didn't know this, but there is actually a guy in the Bible whose name is Vapor. Mm. Any idea? It's Abel. That's exactly right. I was going to say his hint, Cain. It's Abel. Abel is just the transliteration of the Hebrew word Hebel, which is the word for vapor. Though I don't believe, I don't believe that Adam and Eve named their son that at his birth, I think he received that name at his death. For, for we all are able, aren't we? We all, it's, and we are gone. And all, and all associated with that, that's what we call suffering. And that's what we find so deeply troubling, is it not? I know that if, um, if all saints... If God ever gives all saints a building again in the future, I really want to have a, an Ash Wednesday service. I felt the absence of Ash Wednesday, Ash Wednesday service so much this, this week. I don't know. Some of you probably went to an Ash Wednesday service. I mean, to me, the beauty, the genius, the wonder of an Ash Wednesday service is you go forward and the pastor, the priest, he puts the sign of the cross on your forehead with, you know, ashes and these words. Um, from dust you came, and to dust you return. And the author of Ecclesiastes would say that those ashes, they just might as well be vapor, water, mist. And so we must remember this in our trials. The life of faith 
is not grounded in our ability to discern the meaning of everything. The life, this life, defies our attempts to comprehend it. Um, all we have to know are the, you know, the ashen signs on our forehead. For that is the message of the cross. Secondly, life defies our attempts to control and to shape it. In describing human life as vapor, Solomon is emphasizing that you, 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 it's that dust particle image I used earlier. You reach out and you try to grab it and it's gone. In fact, he also does it in another way in verse 14. This is a phrase that keeps popping up again. You know, I've seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are vapor, a shepherding or, or shepherding the wind. That too is a really powerful metaphor, shepherding the wind. When we know what it's like to try to shepherd uh, sheep or, or shepherd people, Solomon, I mean, that was his job as the king was to shepherd people. Shepherding people is like shepherding cats. <laughs> Parenting is like shepherding cats. Trying to get your kids to church on time is shepherding, I don't know, what's more stubborn than a cat? <laughs> you know? um, but, but shepherding the wind, now that's a task. And he says, that's, that is this, this life is, is like one grand attempt to shepherd the wind. Yeah, I, 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 I would say this. The people who are most frustrated, the people who experience the greatest amount of frustration in this life are the people who believe that things and situations and people are made of clay. Because clay is something you can grasp, right? You, you, get, you get it. You shape it. You mold it. You move it. You move it here. You move it there. You make it do what you want it to do. You make your circumstances can be altered and will make this do what I want it to do. We'll, we'll make him or her, my kids, we'll, I'll make them do what I want them to do. They think, they think that people are made of clay. And while we, we, are, we might have been, been made by God, by clay, we are comprised of what? A vapor. People and circumstances and situations, you cannot, they're like the dust particle. You cannot actually go out. They defy our attempts to control them, which is how God made the world to be. I know very early in my ministry life and career, I think I had this attitude, the attitude of, why don't people listen to me? <laughs> I'm a pastor. They really should listen to me. Uh, I've given them good counsel. Why aren't they doing this or that? I mean, now I just laugh. <laughs> no, but truly, because, I mean, don't you realize people are going to do what they're going to do? I can talk to them blue in the face. You're going to do what you're going to do. <laughs> While we can influence our influence, like parents, I mean, yes, you train up the child in the way she, they should go. But even that, it's so limited. Your kids are going to do what they're going to do. And, and people are going to do what they're going to do. And you're either faced with a perennial life of frustration when you can't grasp and mold and move the way or you find this really strange, odd liberation when you realize that it's all missed. Like even the sermon. I know it's missed. 
yeah, similarly, the people whom I've come into contact um, with who have the worst boundaries um, are, are people who really see it's their job to be responsible for the words and actions and emotions of other people. Like the book that, I don't know, if you've read, how many of us have read Cloud and Townsend's Boundaries, Christian counseling book? Um, one of my daughters tried to read it. She was just bored to tears. Uh, I loved it. It was, a, it was an eye-opening book for me. I felt like it was, it was just like unpacking this message right here that like, look, stop trying to be responsible for what they do and what they think and what they feel. Stop trying to, that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility, like you got a, a big enough challenge with <laughs> your own two feet in this one brain, you know, be, be responsible for that because sure, you have some influence, but your influence is so severely limited. The people who just don't have good boundaries are the ones that are just like yanking us and pulling us and, you know, choking us to death, trying to get us what they want, to get us to do what they want them to do. And they don't realize we're vapor. The most interesting part of my study this week was just considering we have this category called wisdom. Um, wisdom, maybe wisdom is a Dave Ramsey book. You read a Dave Ramsey book, you get your finances in order. You have like biblical financial wisdom. And we think of wisdom as kind of ways to make this life go better. And generally speaking, you follow Dave Ramsey, you get out of debt, it's going to go better for you. Then we'll pick up a parenting book and we'll, we'll read, oh yeah, here's how you, here's how you parent. And uh, you do this, you don't do that. We pick up a communication book. Oh, here's how you communicate with other people. And we, we take these like basically wisdom books. And in one sense, you're like on the one side of the coin, that's very good. It does help. But there's such a danger as you're acquiring that kind of wisdom to think that therefore that wisdom ought to achieve this end. <laughs> like that, that by acquiring these skills, I now have, here's the operative word, control to get things to go the way I want them to go. Which is the exact opposite message of vapor of vapors, isn't it? Because vapor of vapors is the other side of the coin saying, dude, you don't have, you, you control nothing. <laughs> and so be very, very careful as you're acquiring the skills to realize that the tide is going to come and wash that sandcastle away. The stock market is going to crash, going to blow up your Dave Ramsey plans. Um, you know, the coronavirus is going to wipe out your investments. Your child is going to go their own way. Your spouse may suddenly get cancer. In those moments... We, we get very frustrated with God, like, you know, hold on, you're not living up to your end of the bargain. In those moments, we may think that things, suddenly things have, we just lost control. We've lost control. You hear people, I've lost control. But that's not true because we were never in control to begin with. We should never say, I got this, because you got nothing. Do you know what we call a sandcastle that goes out in the tide? We call it a shepherding of the wind. Because it was never sand. It was never sand. It was always breath. It was always vapor. Every last bit of it. 
Some people have called Ecclesiastes the most depressing book of the Bible. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, It is an antidote to rose-colored tinted glasses and, and Hallmark card Christianity. But I don't think it's meant to be depressing. For Solomon... Uh, these insights that he gives are not insights that lead ultimately to despair. They may lead to weariness, because this world, shepherding the wind, is a very weary task, and he mentioned that earlier. But no, not to despair. Uh, We may not see any lasting profit from our labors, or from our pleasures, or from our finances. We cannot control the future, yet Ecclesiastes chapter 2 ends with an exhortation to eat and drink. If you'll look with me at verse 24, we see it. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Eat and drink. In the original context, what might that have meant? Probably at least two things. One would have been the important eating and drinking that took place in Israel where the were the sacrificial meals, weren't they? It was, the table that God had, had placed in the, in the temple, uh, the, the Passover meal, like that was eating and drinking to recall the great salvific events that God had done, right? Exodus and, and whatever. It meant that, and then it probably just also meant, yeah, yeah and eat and drink with your friends. Share a, a meal with your friends. Just eat, eat and drink and enjoy with gratitude. For these are gifts to, re- to be received. And uh, that seems to be his recurring kind of answer to this. Is there is a table that has been placed in this world by God. It is a table in the mist. It is a table in the mist that we can gratefully and joyfully eat from and drink from. And that table, is it extends into our homes with our friends and our families and our neighbors. And it's the table that extends into every one of our Sundays. It's the table that Jesus has laid. Probably the best commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes that I've read that I'll be using is Jeff Meyer's commentary titled, A Table in the Mist. I, like, I love the beautiful tree that we have on the front of our bulletin. Uh, and that's a very happy image, it probably ought to be juxtaposed with a table in the mist. For that is the answer that God gives us. And so to summarize, uh, Alistair Roberts, he puts it like this, and I'll I'll close with this. See if you can follow it. it. It's deep, but it's good. Human beings are like vapor, but Jesus is the one who can shepherd the wind. Jesus is the one who is above the fog, Jesus is the one who does not live under the sun, but the one who created the sun and the wind. If we think our task as being that of shepherding the wind, of trying to achieve this gain or task, or trying to see through the deepest realities that we really understand, or trying to control things to make them go the way that we want them to go, that will ultimately set ourselves up for failure and for for frustration. But Ecclesiastes, as we read through it, presents us with a better way, a way of wisdom that does not neglect neglect the tasks that we have on this earth, but puts them in their proper perspective so that all of these things can be enjoyed as Jesus' good gifts and can be held 
if they can ever be held at all, with an open hand. We can appreciate what he has given us, particularly the table. And we can work within the world while recognizing that it is ultimately vapor. It does pass away. That human activity is frail and insufficient to make the mark that we want it to make. But yet, as we trust Jesus, we have someone who is not bound by the limits of vapor, but is permanent. Good words to take to heart. Amen.